The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines this morning. UBS posts its first set of results since its emergency takeover of Credit Suisse, reporting a second quarter net profit of $29 billion and confirming plans to keep the domestic bank of its failed former rival. We'll be hearing from UBS CEO Sergio Motti at 8 o'clock CET. Fed tightening taking hold. A revised reading of second quarter GDP comes in softer than expected, while private payrolls show or slow sharply in August in the latest sign the labor market is losing steam. We've seen the churn, the quits rate, the job openings, the turnover come down significantly. I think that's a game changer for the market. The S&P 500 advancing towards a four-day winning streak, pairing monthly losses as equity markets stage a late August recovery ahead of the all-important jobs report. Our numbers are out tomorrow. And Chinese factory activity shrinks for a fifth straight month, but comes in better than expected despite lingering fears over the health of the country's property sector. And the Biden administration curbs AI chip exports to some Middle Eastern countries, citing concerns around China's access to the critical AI resources. Thanks for joining us. A big news rolling through from UBS this morning as it produces results. And you may recall it was only a couple of weeks ago decided to step away from a, a backstop agreement with Swiss authorities, effectively to tap a large pool of funds in case of calamity. Investors wondering if that was a precursor for its results today. And effectively, uh, the news flow coming through very quick and fast this morning that it will fully absorb Credit Suisse's domestic bank. So the market was looking for whether this could be spun off down the track, but this is often been considered the jewel of the crown of the Credit Suisse assets. And don't forget, there's a lot of toxic assets that some would see in the marketplace from those Credit Suisse assets. But that Swiss domestic bank was seen as a jewel. So the decision coming through to keep that and to fully integrate it. So it does seem as though there were some concerns that there could be some sort of a backlash in Switzerland. But this may step around that as it's decided to move away from the backstop. So effectively, UBS telling us today that um, full integration is the best outcome for UBS stakeholders in the Swiss economy. This according to the chief executive, Sergio Motti. The two Swiss entities will operate separately until their planned legal integration for 2024, with a gradual migration of clients onto UBS systems expected to be completed by 2025. In terms of the numbers, UBS reported $28.875 billion in net profit attributable to shareholders for the second quarter. This, of course, is the first earnings result since it took over Credit Suisse. When it comes to Credit Suisse itself and the markets wanting to know what sort of health Credit Suisse has been in, whether we continue to see a decline in some of the numbers here, and that is exactly what has rolled across the tape today. A net loss of 9.3 billion Swiss francs In the second quarter, around those Credit Suisse numbers, it saw net asset outflows of 39.2 billion francs. Uh, The uh, bank also uh, telling us that uh, assets under management declined 3% from the previous quarter to 1.21 trillion francs as uh, clients and staff exited uh, the bank. So uh, some of that pain trade continued. But certainly big news crossing this morning. I think markets want to know, A, what health 
the overall entity was in, B, what they would do with the Swiss domestic assets, but also the pace of cost savings. And we've seen that ramped up to about $10 billion by the end of 2026 uh, from $8 billion by 2027, which was the initial forecast. Yeah, the health of this business, though, with that $29 billion uh, negative goodwill then uh, from the uh, Credit Suisse acquisition um, is also quite interesting to, to obviously note. I mean, we're not really sure where to then, I suppose, for the whole business per se, but as they try to integrate it, that being what they believe as the best way forward, clearly this does give an indication that they're just wanting to stay close to those customers. How they keep those customers uh, moving on from this is going to be very important then uh, for UBS overall as they uh, try to sustain a sense of, uh, of, of importance, I suppose, for where Credit Suisse's customers can go to from here. Uh, their global wealth management uh, business, UBS, that is recorded their highest second quarter net new money in over a decade. So clearly still a lot of health uh, in that UBS uh, wealth business as well. They plan to achieve greater uh, gross uh, cost reductions, as we've noted then as well, Karen, which was uh, quite uh, significant. And a capital position that was maintained with CET1 capital ratio 14 0.4% there as well. And just to get into where the analysts are sitting on the stock now, and don't forget it has been an incredibly rapid pace of adoption when it comes to the assets over Credit Suisse and the market trying to work out the value of those assets, what it means to the overall entity in terms of keeping clients, losing clients, and uh, the overall sentiment around this entity. Brokers, 11 of the 21 analysts uh, surveyed by FactSet have uh, got the stock at a buy or overweight seven rated a hold three rated a sell which is also interesting to see the spread but mostly on the positive side today um, but i think at this point uh, the noisy numbers still going to be crossing so in the numbers i think uh, the market's still looking for there to be some lumpy quarters ahead there could be uh, fessing up still in terms of some of the credit swiss entities and in terms of what they look like over the longer term uh, in the number of quarters ahead so that's still going to be key i think in terms of getting through some of the noise in terms of the cost cutting the market has wanted to see what that looks like. And I mentioned the pace of this being interesting because obviously cost cutting is seen as positive for the entity. But then domestically, there can be a backlash if it's too aggressive in terms of the layoffs. So there is a fine line for Sergio Motti here in terms of the pace of cost cutting around this group now. Yeah, it's, it's a very gentle and easy as you go sort of approach that I suppose needs to be done here in order to uh, allay any fears that uh, you may find then uh, from a lot of the analysts and, and the market as a whole then. Uh, the expectation then also still with regards to some of these numbers, the expectation for a positive net new asset flow uh, in that wealth and asset management franchise, which would be uh, very interesting. Uh, they also pay, put a note out with, the, with regards to the outlook then saying that their first priority is to stay close to clients, which uh, is, is still bearing that sentiment of them wanting to ensure uh, that they maintain sort of their, their client base right now. How they keep those uh, moving forward is going to be very important. Integrating them into that UBS system only going to happen in 2024, ultimately, uh, when that merger then for them is ultimately finalized. So no change is what they're trying to say to consumers, trying to uh, ensure that uh, customers and, and consumers are, are certainly not feeling a little bit uh, out of their words when it comes to this uh, massive change, ultimately, that happened with this entity. Having strong props for the business is key, and putting the UBS Swiss business together with the Credit Swiss Swiss domestic banking business creates a very strong arm for the business, and that is quite crucial if there are going to be other weak parts coming through the business. 
My question at this point would be whether there would be antitrust concerns still, yeah. whether there'll be any pushback from regulators. And obviously with the regulators very much entwined around this rescue deal and, and having that backstop, that was always going to be interesting, but the backstop removed now. Could you see a more aggressive regulator in terms of antitrust? So that no doubt will be a question that will come up today. In terms of the, the Credit Suisse Investment Bank as well, the pace of change here, there is meant to be, of course, be a focus on the wealth management business. And I know Germana will be speaking later on to Sergio Morty, but one of the key questions around that investment banking business still on the, the executive plan for Credit Suisse assets in that field. Mm. Uh, some, some uh, you, we, had been, we had been speaking just about uh, with regards to um, some of the positions that will continue to be serviced as well, that global wealth management, Swiss bank remaining unaffected as well, very significant uh, in, in the long run here. Um, expected that they will reduce their new markets business, however, right, is the sentiment that we also heard from them uh, a little bit earlier. So how that plays into the overall business right now will be quite significant as well as they integrate their former rivals then. It's, it's, I suppose, a, a set of earnings that for now is as steady as you go and, yeah. and unsurprising, really. It could um, get even spicy from here, though. Up. It could. Because it don't forget, could. we had the share buybacks uh, that were paused earlier in the year. So yeah. in terms of returns for shareholders, that's going to be crucial from here. And there was a report circling in uh, recent weeks about whether it taps the market around Cocos as well. And after the way the Cocos were treated around Credit Suisse, is there any appetite yeah. now for this risky instrument if uh, UBS taps the market again? That ambiguity that was uh, really raised around this rescue is still going to be a lurking issue, no doubt, when yeah. it comes to the entity. So that'll be fascinating. Important, though, that they have put a man who's sort of firm on the tiller to ensure that this process sort of goes along really well as well, I suppose. And perhaps a little bit more trust being placed into the market, uh, into UBS and how they, they take this process moving forward as well going to be very important from here. We've got Jemana's interview coming away later on. Uh, the UBS CEO Sergio Motti that is uh, going to be on the channel in uh, a short while actually, 8 o'clock CET, so be sure to tune in for that interview. Let's head on stateside now, where second quarter GDP has been revised down from 2.4% to 2.1%. Our inventory in investment came in sharply lower than first estimated, declining by nearly $2 billion instead of a previously reported gain of more than $9 billion. Now, business spending was also revised lower, although consumer spending remained resilient. Now, the downward growth revision will be welcomed by the Federal Reserve, which has raised rates to their highest level in 22 years to keep the economy from overheating. Markets are now pricing in a 90% chance of the Fed keeping rates steady in September. Meanwhile, job growth slowed sharply in the month of August, according to the latest ADP data. Private employers added just 177,000 jobs in August, well below the more than 370,000 added in July, the f and fewer than expected. The ADP figures were widely viewed as an indicator of the non-farm payrolls numbers, which are due out on Friday. ADP chief economist Neela Richardson told CNBC the cooling of the labor market can be pinned on a reduction in quit rates and subsequent replacement hiring. We've seen the churn, the quits rate, the job openings, the turnover come down significantly. I think that's a game changer for the market because there was so much replacement hiring being done uh, that businesses, especially small businesses, couldn't grow their headcount. They were just replacing headcount several months because of the job market that was so tight.
We're looking to wrap up the month of August and what a month it has been. Uh, some seasonality, volatility, about a ton of data for markets to respond to. And it was really in some ways a, a tale of two parts because we saw the market sell off very aggressively mid-month around concerns that yields were escalating, short long-term yields, real yields, market concerned about how the U.S. government uh, would finance some of the deficits. So effectively that yield story all important as we had first retail sales crossing uh, very strongly giving us the impression that the consumer remained in very good health a lot of uh, different reports crossing from retailers themselves around some of the nuances around that uh, data set and just where consumers are in fact trading down and then as we wrapped up the, the month of August thankfully Jackson Hole those long the market rescuing the equities uh, trade and we saw a bounce back minimizing some of the losses but it was still a month of red so far and you can see down to the tune of 1.9 percent on the Dow that uh, was a fairly decent sell-off we saw 1.6 off the S&P the uh, tech heavy Nasdaq actually down the most uh, that yield story very much causing investors to go back over some of those tech exposures 3.3 percent down for the Nasdaq of course Nvidia has been one of the big moving stocks again reporting numbers across the month and it was investors again uh, concerned about too much hype around the AI story, but then getting fresh information. And don't forget in recent days, an AI deal with Google. So again, those uh, monetary uh, deals are coming through, justifying some of those valuations uh, to an extent, uh, obviously still inflated, but giving us some sense that there could be tangibles around the numbers uh, in the near future. To what we had over on that 10-year yield, and I mentioned just how volatile it was, this is how it played out. That spike we saw mid-month, and you can see the inverse correlation with stock markets that were down just as that spike took place. The yield 4.11 is what we're seeing in today's trade, but obviously much higher during the trading month of August. In terms of what we saw across on the dollar, it may, be, of course, uh, tell you that story that uh, you saw over the trading month. Nine tenths down on sterling in the month. So sterling just gave up a little bit of territory, as did euro. A dollar strength, all dominant, as we saw that yield story play out mid-month. Dollar yen rates up 2.6%, more than 2% higher versus the yuan. And what a tale of where across that Chinese market for the month of August. We saw a series of announcements just giving us a sense that the mainland market was still in decline and still battling uh, debt loads, property market woes, deflation, consumers changing their behaviours. And let's just take a look at the Asian markets as a result of the trading month. The Shanghai market down itself 5 plus percent, eclipsed by the selling on the Hong Kong market more than 8 percent off. Uh, the property stocks don't forget under pressure. And despite easing from the PBOC and fresh measures, measures to try and support the economy, not enough to resurrect the equities trade and uh, single to high single-digit numbers rolling through in terms of declines. The Japanese stock market, it was a downbeat month as well. Don't forget, this has been one of the favourite trades so far across on those Asian markets for global economies. It did not fare well in the trading month of August, wrapped up in the wider selling on global stocks. The Australian market in the same vein in terms of numbers down 1.4%. And let's compare and contrast to those European stock markets. If you look at the trading month, you can see the very similar patterns playing out. So the pullback mid-month, a slight recovery end of month, but the overall performance a weaker one. In terms of the most resilient, it was the Spanish stock market down less than 1% for the trading month. Uh, one of the worst performers, the DAX in Germany. Investors again questioning uh, whether the mojo has been lost from the powerhouse in, uh, in Europe. 3.3% down for the DAX over the trading month. The FTSE MIB 
in Italy, uh, we saw 2.5% a lot of concerns too around the banks as we saw uh, extra taxes lobbed by the government. And when it comes to the FTSE, we were also travelling weaker to the tune of near on 3%. It was a, a tricky old month, I think, for the FTSE as uh, investors were questioning just what the economic story looks like and whether there is a thirst for resources as a result, Arabile. Thanks for that, Karen. Well, we'll continue to break down the month's market action with Jeffrey Sword, the chief investment strategist at Raymond James. That's an interview coming up at 7.30 Central Eastern Time. Now, coming up on Squawk Box this morning, Chinese factory activity continues to contract, though. And while that comes while troubled property developer Country Garden faces what is a critical shareholder vote. We will bring you the latest from the region. We'll also get the latest French CPI figures at 8.45 CET. That's after yesterday's inflation figures out of Spain and Germany proved to be a little bit stickier than was initially hoped. And as UBS announces the full integration of Credit Suisse's Switzerland, we will be hearing from the man at the helm, Sergio Emoti. That's coming up at 8 o'clock CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Chinese markets are under pressure after manufacturing activity in the country contracted for what is the fifth straight month. And its largest real estate developer by sales posted a record loss and warned that it could default. Let's get to Sam first, though, on those PMI numbers. Sam, another month in contractionary territory here. Good morning to you, Ari Bile. Yes, certainly we have seen persistent sluggishness, but it wasn't all that bad, actually. If you look at the overall trend, things are improving somewhat. They didn't get worse. So while we have seen certainly a fifth month of contraction now, uh, we did actually see a bit of a pickup in terms of that overall factory activity. If you look under the hood at some of the sub-indexes, when you look at new orders, for instance, output, and also uh, when you look at the input prices and the output prices, um, things certainly did pick up. And what that is telling us is that perhaps the worst is over when you look at particularly the output prices in terms of some of those deflationary pressures. So we'll see if that's reflected certainly in the PPI later this month. Um, but of course, uh, when you look at the services sector activity, uh, that is what really largely dragged down the non-manufacturing PMI. And that seems to be um, the worry here because while we do continue to see things holding above the boom or bust line, the overall trend now is that things are slowing down when you look at services. And so now the view very much in the market is that um, while we have started to see evidence that some of the consumption is coming off, we will need to see a pickup, a meaningful improvement, certainly when it comes to manufacturing in order to stabilise growth moving forward. However, some 
of the worries still continue to be in those sub-indexes when you look at new export orders. And that is perhaps going to be a bit of a prelude to the trade numbers we'll be getting out later in the month. But also when you look at the employment gauge, that is still a worrying trend over in China as the authorities continue to try to stabilise the labour market. And so the view in the market now is that the implementation of the policy steps will be very much key here in terms of stabilizing that growth moving forward. In terms of the policy response so far, of course, there has been a lot of disappointment in the market, and that's certainly been reflected in what we've seen um, with Chinese stocks recently. In the latest, we've seen that the PBOC came out today and said that they are looking to improve financing for private firms. The other thing that they announced uh, was that Shenzhen and Guangzhou are now actually going to be easing some of those mortgage policies, although that didn't seem to be enough to actually lift markets today. As you can see there, the Shanghai Composite in the afternoon session now down around six tenths of one percent. Of course, the next cap off the rank, guys, is the Taishin manufacturing PMI out tomorrow. That looks at the smaller and private firms. We'll see how things are holding up there, but the expectation is for another contraction as well. Back to you. Sam, thank you very much for that. Uh, I think it's important to contextualise uh, the China story because it is dragging down some of the other economies as well. And you can see across in Japan today we had PMIs. Uh, we saw factory uh, activity, I should say, uh, industrial output down 2% in July. Also in South Korea, factory output was weaker than anticipated in the month of July. It was down to the tune of 2% too from a month earlier. So this is uh, telling you other economies have been wrapped up in the noise. We know that the economy over in Germany also impacted by what we're seeing. So until we see that improvement out of China, it feels as though the forces may be against some of these big open economies. Yeah, and I mean, you are seeing that it could risk even losing uh, or not even attaining that target of around 5% uh, GDP growth. Of course, you do have weak consumer spending, even tumbling credit growth as well. So a lot of the major banks have actually uh, downgraded some of their growth forecasts as well for the year. Let's remember that after the the massive industrialization process that China has certainly undergone, it is uh, perhaps a a time when they would have reached a lot. It's trying now to find a sense of sustainability, perhaps, when it comes to their uptick. So it's going to be a slow and gradual rise. I don't think the market is perhaps too surprised, but they would have loved uh, a, a big bang sort of approach with government perhaps adding in more uh, when it comes to, 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 to actually picking up some of the activity uh, within the region. So perhaps greater stimulus as opposed to the slow yeah, and steady. What type of stimulus though, because this is key to when we talk about yeah. what type of landing the global economy has at this point, and typically you rely on another arm, which is the consumption arm. Yeah. But we know a lot of policymakers are concerned around reflating that area as we try and tackle inflation. Mm-hmm. I know the South Koreans today have been uh, dealing with some weakness from the retail sales number, what was the, the fastest four month on month since July 2020, mm-hmm. and they're talking about a stimulus measures there from the government, but this is not the answer for other economies. I mean, if we talk about European economies, for instance, is there appetite to stimulate when the ECB may not be done when it comes to hiking interest rates? So it is a little bit chicken and egg at this point whether the consumer can be one that can lead the economy out of this because it could also be stirring inflation. But uh, let's talk about uh, more of the pain points out of China because the property sector has been very much in focus over the entire month of August. And Emily joins us now as China's real estate sector takes yet another hit. Emily, just extraordinary. It feels like death by a thousand cuts as we continue to hear about the pain across on these big property names. 
Yeah, that's right, Karen, and they could be the next shoe to fall. I'm talking about Country Garden, and with their half-year report card, the company also warning about a potential default. Uh, if you may remember, they missed a $2 bond uh, coupon payments at the start of the month, August the 7th to be exact, so they are in that 30-day grace period. With that, they post their first loss since becoming a publicly listed company since 2007. Uh, they're grappling with missed payments, and the group may default on certain borrowings, they say. The first half loss totaling $6.7 billion. The company has a cash balance of a 101 billion yuan. That is just a fraction of the 1.19 trillion yuan in liabilities. The company's president, Mo Bin, saying that they will continue to negotiate with banks and bondholders to delay repayment. If their financial performance continues to deteriorate, they may not be able to fulfill their financial covenants on these borrowings. Uh, the company, as I mentioned, missed two U.S. dollar bond coupon repayments and they suspended trading in 11 of their onshore bonds over at the number two property developer that being Vanka in China half-year income down almost 20% to 1.4 billion on revenues of 27.4 billion dollars uh, the company says that the real estate industry is undergoing a sluggish transaction period and has a grim operating situation current liabilities for Vanka at 981 billion yuan Vanka shares also underperforming the market today down three and a half percent we've got escalating troubles in the property sector and that, of course, is threatening the health of China's financial institutions as well. Back to you for now. Emily, thank you very much for bringing us the latest out of the, the property scene there in China. I want to take you to uh, those Asian markets again. Uh, just a quick recap. We saw these numbers before. The 8% down on that Hong Kong market. Uh, let's just dive into the property stocks because the monthly performance key as we talk about the ongoing issue of default for some of these big names. Country Garden. 44 plus percent in the red for the trading month, eclipsed by Evergrande, 83 percent down, 35 off Sunak, and you can see Cizan down 12 percent, slightly more contained in terms of the carnage on the stock price. But you can see it was a ruffled trading month of August for the property names. For the big banks, it was a slightly disappointing story when it came to some of the stimulus measures, again for global investors and too for the performance of some of these big banks. The one-year LPR was moved, you may recall, in the month of August, but not the five-year. And the moves very much not what the market had anticipated or hoped for. So Bank of China down 7% along with CCB, ICBC down 5% for the month of August. To the dollar yuan trade for the month, this is the picture. Uh, actually, we've got a couple of big tech stocks to show you as well. Alibaba, 7.5% down. Baidu, down 8.9%, 9% off Tencent. JD.com, down double-digit, 19%. So the read into the consumption habits of the Chinese, uh, you could see, was a negative view that we didn't get much stimulus, not enough to resurrect the fortunes of some of these big consumption players, which, of course, are tech players, given the spending on those online platforms. To that dollar-yuan trade over the, the course of the month, you saw 7 0.28 today in the trading session, but traveling weaker to the tune of 2% for the month for the yuan versus the dollar. But don't forget, it was a global story of dollar strength as we saw that yield support. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.